all you have. You are now tuned in to Marcus Rays. You just sat back and ready to play. Let me take your thoughts far, far away. Now let's hear what Darth Vader has to say. We would be honored if you would join us. Hey there, Galaxy Gang. It's your trusty narrator, Kyle, and welcome to Star Wars Audio Archives, your ultimate auditory escape into the Star Wars universe. Ready to jump further into the realm of the Old Republic? Then let's launch straight into part two of Annihilation. Because if you're anything like me, part one left you on the edge of your spaceship seat. Honestly, I'm buzzing with excitement, like a Padawan on the hunt for their first kyber crystal. Ready to dive into the next part? Strap in tight and echoing the legendary Han Solo. Punch it, Chewie. As he bobbed and weaved his way through the crowd, Theron realized he'd never get to the spaceport in time on foot. Fortunately, the unmistakable whine of incoming swoop engines gave him an idea. Dashing into the middle of the square, where he'd be most visible, he shook his fist and shouted up at the young gang members who had circled back around to buzz the crowd yet again. Take your flying toys and get on home, you little punks! As he'd expected, the three riders banked their swoops and came straight at him, drawn by his challenge. Theron ducked and covered his head as the first swoop buzzed past a couple of meters overhead. The second came even closer. Theron turned and ran toward the cover of the nearest building, throwing quick glances back over his shoulder as he pretended to flee in terror. The third rider took the bait and gave chase, accelerating to cut Theron off before he could get to safety. He came in much lower than the other two, trying to force Theron to prostrate himself on the ground to avoid getting struck by his swoop. Theron played his part by crouching low as if cowering in fear. Then, at the last moment, he sprang up and grabbed the rider's arm as the swoop narrowly missed him. Caught by surprise, the young thug was yanked from his seat. Theron held his grip for just an instant, twisting so that the rider fell hard on his backside and not on his unprotected head. The rider rolled across the square as the swoop veered and spun freezingly out of control until the internal stabilizers righted it. The swoop's built-in safety protocols detected the rider's absence and brought the vehicle down for a safe landing on the other side of the square. The crowd processed what had just happened in a stunned silence, broken by the sound of the other two swoops racing away, their riders unaware of their friend's fate. Then everyone erupted in a spontaneous round of applause and cheers. Theron ignored them and ran over to check on the fallen rider. The young man had rolled over onto his back, where he lay dazed and groaning. Several patches of skin on his bare arms and hands had been scraped raw from his fall, but otherwise he appeared okay. Hey kid, next time wear a helmet, Theron said, giving him a pat on the cheek. The teen only groaned in reply, though he did manage to flash an obscene gesture. Theron took that as a sign he was all right. The sound of the retreating swoop engines changed pitch. The other two thugs were circling back. Theron turned and ran for the fallen rider's swoop, leapt on, and fired up the engine. As he took off, he hoped the other two would stop to look after their friend instead of giving chase. Glancing back over his shoulder, however, he wasn't surprised to see them close on his tail. Theron punched the accelerator, pushing his ride to full speed as he climbed in altitude the buildings and streets a blur of colors as he flew past. In the days before joining the SIS, Theron had carved out a reputation on the minor league swoop circuits of Manan. He doubted the riders in pursuit were a match for his skills, but he was on an unfamiliar machine, racing through streets they knew like the back of their hands. 
losing them wasn't going to be easy. He didn't worry about them taking him down with blasters. Swoop bikes were notoriously unstable, and at high speeds, even the most experienced riders needed both hands to maintain control. But if they were reckless enough, they could try ramming him with their own swoops to force him into a crash. Navigation, overlay for current location, he whispered, and the HUD in his left eye implant responded by superimposing a map of the surrounding area over his vision. The blue dot signifying his location was moving too quickly across the map for Theron to look for shortcuts, so he plotted a course through the main thoroughfares. He doubted his pursuers would do the same. The swoop he took was improperly balanced, and it would take a while for him to get a true feel for the bike. He banked hard around a corner, struggling to hold the line as the swoop tried listing to the left. Throwing his weight in the opposite direction, he managed to stay upright, but the awkward move cost him speed. Glancing back over his shoulder, Theron saw only one gang member in pursuit. Alarms went off in his head, and he focused on the map overlaying his vision. He saw the side alley on the map a split second before it appeared to his left, giving him just enough time to throttle back. The early deceleration allowed Theron to narrowly avoid a collision as the second rider shot out of the alley just in front of him in an attempt to knock him off his swoop. Theron dived down and to the left, the sharp change of direction overstressing the stabilizers on the misbalanced vehicle. Instead of fighting to stay upright, though, he leaned into it and hammered the accelerator, pushing the swoop into a tight barrel roll that took him under the rider who'd cut in front of him. The kid following wasn't able to mimic Theron's move. The only way he could avoid ramming into his partner was by slamming the emergency brakes, stalling the engine as the other two swoops raced ahead and left him behind. The spaceport was only a few kilometers away, well outside the territory of the rider's gang. With his friends no longer in the picture, Theron figured his pursuer just needed a little more encouragement to give up the chase. He released the grip of his right hand as he grabbed the blaster on his hip. The swoop bucked and swayed as soon as he let go. But now that he was used to the idiosyncrasies of the machine, Theron managed to maintain control long enough to turn and fire a pair of quick shots at his pursuer. The bolts went nowhere near their target. Flying a swoop bike with one hand was a feat in itself. Holding it steady enough to accurately aim was nearly impossible. Regardless, the bolts had the desired effect. The other rider decided he'd had enough and veered off, ending the pursuit. Theron slowed his vehicle and slapped his blaster back into its holster, struggling to keep the swoop online the entire time. Once he had two hands on the handles again, he took it back up to full speed for the rest of the journey. He arrived at the spaceport less than a minute later, bringing the swoop in for a landing near the main doors leading into the hangar bays where Tefeth and her crew had docked their ship. A small crowd was milling around outside the entrance. Curious, Theron tapped an agitated-looking Sullustin on the shoulder. What's going on here, friend? Ugly business, the Sullustin replied in his native tongue. Hut business. Which hut? Morbo? Theron asked in basic... He had a bad feeling he already knew the answer. The Sullustan shrugged. Dunno. Armed men show up. Tell everyone in base 7 through 12 to clear out. I don't ask questions. The distinctive sound of a heavy repeating blaster rang out from inside the hangar. The crowd collectively flinched and took a few steps back, leaving a clear path for Theron as he ran inside.
Tefeth was in the middle of loading crates of tightly packed spice onto the ship when she was suddenly hit with an overpowering sense that something wasn't right. Nothing specific, just a half-imagined tingling in the tips of her leku. Based on past experience, she knew better than to ignore it. Something bad coming, she said in her heavily accented basic, drawing twin blasters that she kept at her side and scanning the spaceport for anything suspicious. Gorvich, the human who'd set up the spice deal on Narshada, snorted as he finished his pre-flight inspection of the ship's exterior. You've been complaining ever since we landed, sunshine. Tepid's lip curled up in a sneer. Gorvich had originally given her the nickname because of her yellow skin and sunny disposition. She was convinced he kept using it just to annoy her. She had a nickname for him, too. Idiot. Hardly original, but accurate. In her twenty-odd standard years, she had worked as security and muscle for low-level scum across the galaxy, trying to scrape out a living on the fringes of so-called decent society. She dealt with thieves, killers, slavers, and sociopaths. But nobody brought bile to her throat like Gorvich. Not even that SIS agent who'd gotten her mixed up in a crazy suicide mission almost two years ago. It was tempting to just put Gorvich out of her misery with one clean shot between the eyes. But that would mean walking away from the old tea and brotherhood. And Tefeth wasn't ready to do that. The brotherhood was growing fast, and Tefeth was already earning a reputation. If she played her cards right, the next few years could see her moving up the ranks until she was the one calling the shots instead of taking orders from morons. Friend. Another member of the crew grunted as he sauntered down the ship's boarding ramp to join them on the loading platform. Sounds like you're just trying to get out of loading these crates, he said. Tefeth ignored him. He was almost as stupid as Gorvich, but he wasn't in charge. She didn't need to convince him of anything. Forget the cargo. Got to go. We leave now. Are you crazy, sunshine? Do you know how much this spice is worth? Said Gorvich. Can't spend if you're dead. Did you know she was this paranoid when you decided to bring her along? Friend asked Gorvich, smirking. Think Mobo double-crossed us? Tefeth asked. Sent goons to get our cargo? Gorvich laughed. <laughs> Not likely. Morbo doesn't even know we're here. Tefeth's eyes went wide. What you mean? I'm not cutting that bloated slug in on our deal just because he thinks he owns this district. Figured we'd handle the deal ourselves and make an extra 20%. Idiot! Tefeth spat, barely suppressing the urge to unleash a volley of bolts into his chest at point-blank range. Mubonos! Going to get us killed! Gorvich rolled his eyes. But Veb, the fourth member of their crew, set down the crate he was carrying and joined the conversation. Maybe she's right, the Rodian said. I feel it too. Something's off. As soon as he spoke, Tefeth realized what was wrong. The spaceport was always bustling with activity. Crews loading or unloading their ships. Mechanics making repairs. But instead of the familiar sounds, right now she heard only silence. All the loading docks around their vessel were deserted. Down! She shouted, 
diving forward, tackling Gorvich and dragging them both to the ground behind a stack of crates, still waiting to be loaded onto the ship. Veb followed her, his thin, wiry body ducking behind the crate he had just set on the ground. Fryn, however, just stood where he was, staring at them with a look of skeptical bemusement. A second later, a heavy repeating blaster echoed through the deserted spaceport, and Fryn's body slumped to the ground. His dead eyes opened, and his face frozen in the same stupid expression. Tefeth poked her head up, and then ducked back down almost instantly behind her makeshift bunker as another volley rang out. From the sound, she was able to pick out general points of origin for the shots. Do shoot this, she said to Gorvich, tilting her head in each direction. There, and there. Gorvich popped his head up briefly, then ducked back down as the assassins opened fire. I can't see him. Tefeth didn't bother to tell him what a waste of effort his actions were. The far side of the hangar was shrouded in thick shadows and cluttered with heavy machinery for loading and unloading cargo from the incoming ships. The assassins were well protected and well hidden. Maybe we can make a break for the ship, Gorvich suggested as he checked the charge on each of his blasters. She almost let him try, but then realized she'd need his help if she was going to get out of this alive. Shooters got the angle on ship. Cut us down if we go for it. So what's the plan? Tefeth ran through the possible scenarios in her mind. The shooters had chosen their positions to pen them in and keep them from getting to the safety of the ship. But there was a door in the rear of the hangar she might be able to reach. If she got through the door, she could work her way through the adjacent docking base of the spaceport and try to flank their attackers. Slip out the back, into Bay 7. Circle around to Bay 9. Come up behind. Sounds risky. Gorvich said, eyeing the open stretch between their current position and the door at the rear of their hangar. Want me to send Veb? Tefeth glanced over at the Rodian, still cowering behind the crate. He was a good pilot, but not much use in a fight. He hadn't even drawn his pistol. You joking? What if there are more than just two shooters? Gorvich asked. Tefeth was surprised her idiot leader was capable of anticipating a trap though she had already considered the possibility. If she had been the one planning this ambush, she'd have tried to flush the targets away from the ship and through the door at the rear leading into the adjacent hangar, and right into the waiting crosshairs of a third shooter. Bay 7 wasn't in use. The lights were off, and try as she might, she couldn't tell that there was someone waiting in the gloom to spring a trap. But she didn't see any other options. Better to just go for it and hope there were only two assassins. Cover us, she said, getting her long legs ready for the quick sprint to the door. Gorvich nodded, then popped up from behind the crate, screaming his fury as he unleashed a wild volley of shots to draw their enemy fire. Tefeth took off, crouching low but moving fast as she broke for the door and the darkness beyond. Theron ran through the deserted hangars, heading toward Bay 8, where Tefeth's crew had docked their ship. He heard another round of blaster fire and took it as a good sign. There wouldn't have been more shots unless Tefeth and her people were fighting back. Charging into the middle of the firefight in Bay 8 was too risky even for Theron, so he took a detour through the adjacent hangar. He plunged into the darkness of the unused Bay 7, nearly knocking over a heavily armored figure half hidden in the shadows. A single thick horn protruded from the center of his bald head, clearly marking him as an adversary even in the near darkness. 
He was standing in the middle of the room, with his blaster rifle raised to his shoulder, back toward the entrance Theron had come through, attention focused on the door leading into Tepet's hangar. Hearing the pounding steps coming up behind him, the Advose started to turn toward the new arrival, but Theron was on him before he could react. With a front kick, he knocked the blaster rifle from the alien's hands, then threw a quick flurry of punches at his face. However, the assassin wasn't some clumsy street duck. He ducked under the blows and took Theron off his feet with a leg sweep. Theron rolled out of the way as his foe brought an elbow crashing down on the floor where his head had been an instant before. Still prone, he lashed out with his boot. But the Advose turned away, and instead of crashing into his jaw, it glanced off his shoulder. The assassin reached to his belt for his backup weapon. Theron was faster, snapping his arm up as he growled, Toxicity 10! Unleashing the only unused weapon still left in his bracer. Unlike the arsenal of incapacitating darts, the single-shot pinpoint laser was lethal at a range of less than three meters. The bright intensity of the needle-thin beam pierced the darkness and struck the Advose just below the horn protruding from the center of his brow, killing him instantly. The body toppled forward, momentarily pinning Theron beneath its bulk. Before he had a chance to roll the fall-spin assassin off him, someone else came barreling into the room from the door on the opposite end. Tefeth heard the assassins returning Gorvich's fire as she raced exposed across the hangar floor. A pair of bolts ricocheted off the ground beside her as she dived through the open door and into the unlit room beyond, safely out of the line of fire. She slid across the floor and scrambled to her feet, bracing herself for the deadly impact of a blaster bolt from the possible third assassin waiting in the shadows. But the trap was never sprung, and Tefeth grinned as she realized they might still get out of this alive. Assassins didn't want to cut the bounty three ways. Greedy. Stupid. Eager to make them pay for their mistake, she rushed through the room and out the door on the other side. She never even noticed the two figures, one alive, one dead, lying in the shadows on the floor only a few meters off to the side. Theron watched Hefeth race past, oblivious to his presence. Once she was gone, he rolled out from under the Advose's corpse and got to his feet. He preferred to disable opponents when possible, but sometimes that wasn't an option. In any case, he wasn't about to shed tears for a hired assassin. He'd saved Tefeth from walking into a deadly trap, and he'd done it without giving himself away. But there were other assassins to deal with, and though Tefeth might have gained the upper hand thanks to his intervention, he wasn't about to leave her fate to chance. Moving more cautiously and keeping to the shadows, he slipped away in the direction the young Twi'lek had disappeared. Tefeth emerged from the darkness of Base 7 into the central supply room serving hangars 7 to 12. Her original plan had been to go through the supply room into Bay 9 and try to come at the assassins from behind. But when her eyes fell on the heavy loader and a damaged fuel core resting in the corner, she had a better idea. The core was cylindrical in shape, one meter thick and two meters tall, and it weighed over a ton. It wasn't uncommon for ships to make minor repairs while docked at a spaceport, but replacing an engine's fuel core was a major undertaking. It wasn't just the size that made repairs difficult. Residual fuel trapped inside the core was highly flammable. The core was enveloped in thick shield casing, but if the casing was cracked, 
and the liquid inside exposed to air, it could ignite. Tefeth inspected the core. The casing was fully intact. It had probably been replaced because of a blockage in the lines. Reassured the engine core wouldn't unexpectedly explode, she jumped into the loader's operator seat and primed the starter. The compact vehicle's powerful engine coughed, sputtered, and belched out a thick cloud of black smoke before finally catching. The loader had seen better days that would be good enough for what she had planned. She could feel the vibrations of the twin treads rumbling over the floor and up through her chair as she maneuvered the loader over to the fuel core. With a couple of button presses, she manipulated the loading arms so that they grabbed the fuel core at either end and hoisted it into the air, holding it lengthwise. She lowered the arms slightly until the core was level with her seat, allowing her to just barely see over the top of the cylinder toward where she was going. She spun the loader in place and sent it chugging back through the door she had just entered. Theron heard the loader's engine and quickly ducked into the shadows out of sight as it came chugging past, carrying a discarded starship fuel core. Seeing Tepeth at the controls, he knew exactly what she was planning and decided it was time for him to make his exit. He waited until the loader disappeared through the door heading back to Base 7. Then he slipped into the supply room and out through one of the bays on the opposite side. Confident she could take care of the remaining assassins without any more help from him. Tefeth saw Gorbich's eyes grow wide as the loader rumbled through the door at the rear of the hangar. The assassins, still hidden on the far side, opened fire at the new target. But Tefeth was careful to keep her head tucked behind the fuel core, and their bolts deflected harmlessly off the cylinder's thick casing. Gorbich took the opportunity to pop up from behind his cover and fire a few token shots at his attackers as Tepeth steered the loader to where Veb was hiding. Time to go, she shouted over the engine. She positioned her vehicle to block the assassins from getting a clear shot, allowing the Rodian to scamper over to the ship's loading ramp and disappear into the hold. As she turned the loader in Gorbich's direction, one of the assassins finally broke cover and moved to a new position to get a shot at Tepeth. The Twilly couldn't make out the species through the helmet and full body armor, but the figure appeared female. Finally presented with a target he could see, Gorvich seized the opportunity. His twin blasters struck with deadly precision, dropping the exposed assassin in her tracks before she had taken two steps. Nice shot, Tefeth noted, grudgingly admitting to herself that Gorvich wasn't completely useless. Nice ride, Gorvich responded cocking one eyebrow at the loader. The lone remaining assassin fired off another round. Once again, it deflected harmlessly off the massive engine core. The ship's engine behind them roared to life, and the hangar's roof slid slowly open with a loud squeal as Veb prepared for takeoff. Green-skinned scumsucker better not ditch us, Gorbich spat. Your style, not his, Tempeth thought. Out loud, she said, Get to the ship! Gorbich shook his head. I'm not leaving half our shipment behind. Get rid of this last assassin, and we can take our time loading up the rest of the spice. Tepeth was about to tell him how stupid he was being when she saw something small and round flying through the air toward them. Detonator! She shouted, ducking down low in her seat. Gorbich dived behind the loader as the detonator exploded. There was a sudden flash of light and sound, and then everything went black. 
as her consciousness returned, Tiffith slowly opened her eyes. She was lying on the ground, covered in a fine powder, and the only sound she heard was a piercing whine. She surveyed the scene around her, struggling to make sense of what had happened. Much of the detonator's concussive shockwave escaped through the roof, but the blast had still been powerful enough to wreak havoc on the hangar. The crates had been blown to bits, showering the hangar and everything in it in a dusting of spice and splintered chunks of wood. The loader lay on its side beside her, upended by the force of the blast. The bodies of Fryn and the bounty hunter Gorvit shot had been flung all the way to the rear of the hangar, where they'd landed in twisted heaps. Tefeth realized the loader had shielded her from the worst of the blast. It was the only reason she'd survived. She wondered if Gorvich had been as lucky as she rose unsteadily to her feet. Her ears were still ringing, and her balance was off kilter. It was all she could do not to topple over. On the far side of the room, she saw an armored man crawling on his hands and knees. The assassin who tossed the explosive. He was clearly shaken and disoriented, but he was moving slowly toward where his blaster rifle lay on the floor nearby. Tefeth grabbed for the pistol at her hip, but the sudden motion was too much in her wobbly state, and she staggered sideways and fell to the ground. Her clumsy movements drew the attention of the assassin as he wrapped his fingers around his weapon. He drew it up slowly and took aim at Tefeth. Before he could fire, a single shot came from over her shoulder, striking him in the chest. His armor absorbed the worst of the blow, but the impact sent him sprawling backward, and the gun dropped from his hand. Tefeth turned to see Veb coming down the ship's boarding ramp, pistol in hand, and a grim look in his eyes as he advanced on his vulnerable opponent. In a fair fight, the pilot wouldn't have stood a chance. But Veb had been inside the ship when the detonator had gone off. He was the only one not staggering and stumbling around. The assassin sat up and fumbled at his belt, going for his backup weapon as Veb continued toward him. The Rodian fired three more shots from point-blank range putting an end to his desperate, clumsy efforts. He turned to Tefeth and took hold of her arm, dragging her to her feet. Not so fast, she grumbled, swaying unsteadily even with his support. Got to hurry, he told her, his voice sounding distant and hollow. Tefeth looked in the direction he was pointing and saw that the ship's core had been badly damaged by the explosion. Casing's cracked, he said. Thing could blow any second. Tefeth nodded. With Veb's help, she stumbled over to the waiting ship and half staggered, half crawled up the boarding ramp. To her surprise, Gorvich was already waiting for them in the hold. Check her out, Veb said as he gently lowered her to the floor. Then he punched the button to retract the ramp before racing up to the cockpit. Gorvich was covered in scrapes and bruises, and he moved with a pronounced limp as he slowly made his way over to the ship's medkit. But otherwise, he seemed to be okay. Clearly, the loader had shielded him from the worst of the blast as well. Fortune favors fools, Tepeth thought as the ship took to the air. There was a deep boom from somewhere far below them as the cracked casing on the engine core gave way. The explosion made the ship buck and lurch, sending Gorvich tumbling hard to the floor where he landed with a heavy grunt. Stupid Rodian can't even fly straight, he muttered as he hauled himself back to his feet. 
In her mind's eye, Tepeth could imagine the damage caused by the fuel core's detonation. Bay 7 through 12 would all be out of commission for weeks as crews cleaned up the mess and made structural repairs. The huts wouldn't be happy about the lost revenue. They'd be looking for someone to blame. Morbo might end up having to foot the bill. He was the one who organized the hit that went sour. She decided it would be wise to stay far away from Nar Shaddaa for the foreseeable future. Gorvich sat down gingerly beside her and opened the medkit. Show me where it hurts, sunshine, he said with a lecherous smile. Don't need help, she growled, slapping his hand away as he reached out toward her. Why are you so mad? May have left half the spice behind, but it's still a good score. Prince dead, she reminded him. Your fault. Should have paid more, Bo. Gorvich shrugged. Never liked Friend much. Besides, now we get to split his share. It all worked out for the best. Tefeth wasn't so ready to simply dismiss everything that happened. Now that they were free and clear, she had a strong sense that they weren't seeing all the pieces of the puzzle. Missing something, she muttered. Why only two assassins? Send three, we don't stand a chance. We got lucky. Happens sometimes. Try to enjoy it. Don't rely on luck. It turns. Always doom and gloom with you, isn't it, sunshine? Gorfitch said, shaking his head as he rose to his feet and made his way to the cockpit. Alone in the hold, Tefeth couldn't let it go. She kept playing the fight over and over in her head trying to understand why Morbo hadn't taken the simple precaution of sending a third assassin to cut off their retreat. The more she struggled with the problem, the more she became convinced she had overlooked something very, very obvious. Theron was already outside the spaceport, milling with the rest of the crowd beyond the doors when he heard the first explosion. He resisted the urge to rush back inside, he didn't want to draw any unwanted attention to himself, but he couldn't help wondering if something had gone wrong with Tevet's plan. When he saw her ship taking off after a short time, he breathed a deep sigh of relief. The second explosion came an instant later, this one much larger than the first. Cries of dismay welled up from the crowd, most from pilots and captains imagining what damage might have been done to their ships. Which hangar are you in? Theron asked the Sullustin he'd been speaking with earlier. Me ten, he replied glumly in his native tongue. Then his eyes narrowed. You run inside. Why? Had to check on my cargo, Theron lied. Make sure everything was safe. You come back out. Big explosions, the Sullustin continued. Suspicious. Don't try to pin this on me, Theron said defensively. You said it yourself. Hut business. You got a problem? Talk to them. The Sullustan continued to glare at Theron for several seconds, then finally turned away. Just worried about my ship. Me too, Theron said. When he continued, he spoke loud enough for the others in the crowd to hear. That explosion sounded bad. The Huts will probably want to shut down the whole spaceport while they make repairs. Shut it down? The Celestin echoed, the idea suddenly taking root in his head. Yeah, 
They'll probably quarantine the whole area and seize everything inside as evidence while they investigate what happened. There was a moment of stunned silence as the crowd pondered the implications of his words. Then a woman shouted, No way I'm letting those greedy slugs get their mitts on my ship! Her defiant outcry touched off a stampede as everyone tried to get inside at once, pushing and shoving one another out of the way in their haste to grab whatever cargo they could and take off before the hut swooped in and closed the spaceport down. Theron waited a few seconds until the small crowd had completely disappeared into the spaceport. Confident there wouldn't be any witnesses sticking around to give his description to the huts and cause trouble for Republic SIS, he sauntered off in the other direction, whistling an old Mantellian tune. Marcus Trant had a lot on his mind. As director of Republic's Strategic Information Service, that wasn't unusual. He was always juggling the day-to-day -day operations of the Republic's intelligence arm with the political games necessary for any government agency to stay afloat. Unlike some of the Republic's more traditional institutions, the Jedi or the Galactic Senate, for example, SIS still had to justify its existence at every turn to keep from getting shut down or having its funding slashed by a senator campaigning for re-election on a platform of responsible government spending. Unlike the military, most of what the SIS did was behind the scenes and off the record. Marcus liked to tell his operatives that if they did their job right, nobody would even know what they had done. Unfortunately, that answer didn't fly when facing a budget hearing. The bureaucrats who ultimately decided his organization's fate wanted something to show for the credits they poured into the SIS. They expected the director to reveal highly classified mission details, ignoring the fact that doing so would jeopardize his people. Fending off their ridiculous requests was exhausting. Things would be much easier with a strong political ally who could vouch for the value of what the SIS did. Someone too powerful and important to be questioned by the politicians and desk jockeys. Someone like Jace Malcolm the supreme commander of the Republic military. Jace was a highly respected and universally admired war hero. Having him in the SIS corner would help get the simpering bureaucrats to back off. The recently appointed supreme commander had asked SIS to undertake a special mission. Everything had been going smoothly until Theron got mixed up in it. The director hadn't heard from Theron since yesterday, when he'd tersely broken off their conversation about what he was doing on Nar Shaddaa. Since then, Theron had disappeared, but not before disabling a fellow SIS agent, causing an industrial accident at one of Nar Shaddaa's spaceports, and unraveling three months of covert surveillance. Despite all this, the director was waiting before filing his official report. Theron was one of his best agents. He'd earned the benefit of the doubt. The least Marcus could do was wait to hear his side of the story before ending his career. The receptionist behind the desk in Jace's waiting room looked up at his arrival, and Marcus was immediately struck by her remarkable green eyes. Go right in, director, she said, flashing him a dazzling smile as she pressed the button to open the office door in the wall behind her. The commander's waiting for you. He passed by the receptionist and into the office beyond trying to focus on how he could explain what had gone wrong to the Supreme Commander without getting Theron court-martialed. Jace Malcolm was seated behind a desk, studying his computer monitor intently. His skin was lighter than the director's own ebony hue, 
though still tanned and weathered. The complexion of a man who had spent most of his life outdoors. Hints of his age showed in the crow's feet around his eyes and the slight graying at the temples of his dark hair, though it was hard to notice with the short military cut he sported. But his body was still in fighting shape. Broad-shouldered and thick-chested, he looked like he could hold his own on the battlefield. His most notable feature was the gruesome patchwork of scars and melted flesh that covered most of the right side of his face. He'd been wounded by a detonator many years ago at the Battle of Alderaan, while serving as the leader of the legendary Havoc Squad Special Forces Unit. Looking at the scarring, the director couldn't help thinking of Theron again. It had been Theron's mother, Master Satil Shan, now the Grand Master of the Jedi Order, who led the Jedi that fought alongside Havoc Squad that day. Together, Satil and Jace fought the Sith Lord Darth Malgus on the battlefield, turning the tide of the conflict. Though Malgus survived the encounter, the Republic won the day and reclaimed Alderaan from the Empire. Close the door, Director, Jace said, turning away from the screen. And take a seat. Marcus snapped off a curt salute, then settled into the chair across from the Supreme Commander. Your message said we had to talk about Transom, Jace said. I assume something's gone wrong. Someone slipped in and freed the prisoners before the auction, the director explained. Stole them right out from under Morbo's nose. It blew up a spaceport, too, Jace noted. And that, Marcus admitted sheepishly. Transom is Jace's pet project. Should have guessed he'd be following it more closely than usual. I thought the plan was to wait until after the auction, Jace pressed. Get our people back after they left Narshadar, so Morvo wouldn't know we'd found out about his slave trafficking ring. We had a communication breakdown, Marcus said, choosing his words carefully. Two agents following different agendas got in each other's way. We're still trying to sort out the details. Isn't it your job to make sure your agents stay out of each other's way? The Supreme Commander asked. The Director's options were clear. Tell Jace about Theron defying orders to act on his own, or stay silent and take the blame himself. You're right, sir. I accept full responsibility. It won't happen again. The Supreme Commander didn't reply. Instead, he just stared at Marcus in silence causing the director to shift uncomfortably in his seat. He knows I'm holding something back, covering for someone. Eager to get out from under Jace's penetrating gaze, the director broke the silence. I know how important Operation Transom was to you, sir, Marcus said. And we did manage to rescue Republic soldiers who would otherwise have spent their lives as slaves. Maybe what happened on Narsadar will send a message, he continued. Make the Huts think twice before selling off Republic POWs. Remind them that we look after our own. Let's hope so, Jace said, his glare softening. Maybe it's for the best anyway. Free up resources for something else. Something big. Something bigger than saving your fellow soldiers from slavery? Marcus silently wondered. What are your feelings on the current state of the war effort? The Supreme Commander asked, seeming to suddenly change topics. The question was familiar enough, 
The director had answered it a hundred different times in various meetings over the years. Usually, he would give the answer he thought the listener was looking for to make the meeting go more smoothly. But Jace wasn't like the politicians he usually dealt with, and he decided that being blunt and honest was worth the risk. The Empire is reeling. For the first time in decades, we have the upper hand. When the Emperor fell, it left a void atop the Sith power structure. Malgus tried to fill it, but when his coup failed and he was killed, the Empire was left without a clear leader to rally them. After a brief pause, he added, Imperial intelligence has fallen apart, and without their input, the Imperial military strategy has become ineffective and unfocused. You can't run a war without good intel. You don't have to sell me on SIS, Jace told him, a hint of a smile on his lips. I appreciate what you bring to the table. Believe it or not, I actually read all those reports you send me. Sorry, Commander. I guess I'm used to dealing with politicians and bureaucrats. I've been studying your analysis of Imperial threats quite closely, Jace continued. There's one in particular that caught my eye. The Ascendant Spear. Once again, Marcus's thoughts returned to Theron. The Ascendant Spear was a prototype long-range battlecruiser developed by the brilliant Darth Mechus as part of a secret Imperial weapons program. Theron, with the help of his mentor, Jedi Master Nagani Zhou, learned about the program and nearly ended it by killing Darth Mechus. Of all her deadly creations, only the Ascendant Spear still survived. Zhou died on that mission, Marcus thought. Gave his life to save Tefith. That's why Theron feels responsible for her now. All the connections to Theron were starting to feel like more than just coincidence. His mother would probably say something about the Force working in mysterious ways. But the director knew Theron wasn't attuned to the Force. Not like a Jedi. Something wrong, director? Marcus shook his head, trying to get out of his own thoughts. Uh, just thinking about the Ascendant Spear. Fill me in. Most of what we know is theory and conjecture, pieced together from battlefield reports. It's got some kind of revolutionary hyperdrive. Probably the fastest ship ever built. Enough firepower to wipe out an entire fleet. Your reports estimate the Ascendant Spear is responsible for more Republic casualties than the next ten most effective Imperial battlecruisers combined. The Spear is so much more advanced than any other ship that we still don't know its full capabilities, the Director admitted. And what about the Commander? Darth Carrot? Darth Malgus is apprentice, the Director said. She's a Faleen. Used to be on our side. Trained with the Jedi before defecting to the Sith. I'm surprised they accepted her, Jace said. I thought they believed only humans and pure-blooded Sith were worthy of joining their ranks. Malgus was different, Marcus explained, before adding, Carrod's a tactical genius, and she's completely ruthless. Every battle the Ascendant Spear has been involved in has been a massacre for our side. If it weren't for Carrod and the Spear, we might have already won this war. Jace nodded and the director had the impression that the Supreme Commander already knew all this. It was almost as if Jace had been testing him. 
I'm putting a task force together to take Ascendant Spear down, the Supreme Commander said. Marcus was impressed by the boldness of the plan, but his enthusiasm was tempered by reality. As much as he wanted to voice his support to get in good with Jace, he felt he owed it to the Supreme Commander to be honest. SIS has investigated this option before, Marcus said. We couldn't find a way to make it work. This isn't going to be an SIS op, Jace told him. I want a joint mission, with the full cooperation of the military, the Jedi, and SIS. SIS is at your disposal, the director assured him, though inside he was skeptical. Joint missions were great in theory, but in practice they tended to become turf wars as the different agencies fought to take all the credit and shift all the blame. I know what you're thinking, Jace said, but this is too big for anyone to handle alone. The only way to pull this off is to work together. The Supreme Commander stood and came around from behind the desk, moving quickly. He seized Marcus's shoulders with his massive hands, his steel grip just short of being painful. Leaning forward, he brought his face in close. His unblinking eyes seemed to bore deep into the director, as if Jace was seeking out the depths of his heart and mind. Don't tell me what I want to hear, he insisted. I believe we can do this. And I need you to believe it, too. Are you with me, Marcus? Really, truly with me? I'm with you, Commander, the director vowed, his reservation swept away by the Supreme Commander's raw intensity and conviction. Good man, Jace said, patting him on the shoulders as he released his grip and stood up. I knew I could count on you. He made his way back around to the other side of the desk and settled back into his chair. I'm sending you everything I have on the spear and Darth Carrot, Jace told him. Classified reports from every military engagement the spear's been involved in. Confidential evaluations prepared by Carrot's trainers and the masters at the Jedi Academy. Everything. Study it all in detail and send me a list of agents you'd recommend for this job. I want those dossiers by next week. Yes, sir, Marcus said. Remember... This is our top priority, Jace said. The Ascendant Spear is the single biggest threat to the Republic, our fleets, and our citizens. I intend to destroy it, and I want you to tell me how. Whoa, talk about a cosmic explosion. The old Republic just hit us like a nuke. My brain is doing hyperspace jumps just thinking about what's next. And remember, folks, that was just round two. I'm all fired up, like a Tauntaun mistakenly sunbathing on Tatooine. With every moment, new faces pop up and our story web even gets more intricate. But hang on, it's time for the iconic episode quote, because this stellar snippet is brought to you by Sirian Shan. He said, True strength is not measured by one's connection to the Force, but by the choices we make and the actions we take in the face of adversity. So here's the deal, fam. You know how in the Star Wars universe, Jedis can do amazing things with the Force, like mind tricks and lifting up stuff. Well, in real life, we may not have the Force, bummer I know, but we have something even cooler. The power to choose and act. Think about it. True strength isn't about having supernatural abilities, but rather how we respond to tough situations. When life throws challenges at you like a Sith Lord of difficult tasks or the dark side of a tough friendship, your strength lies in the choices you make. 
here's where things get exciting. You can choose to stay positive and focused, to work hard and improve your knowledge. Every choice you make shapes your destiny, just like a Jedi choosing between the light and the dark side. And the best part, it's not just about the choices, but the actions you take based upon those choices. So embrace your inner Jedi and remember, it's not about the force you have or don't have. It's about the choices you make and the force of positivity and determination within you. You got this. And that's all I have for this episode. I hope you enjoyed part two of Annihilation and I hope you will join me for part three in a few days. Until then, may the force be with you. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archives. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening and may the force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quinn McDaniel and was distributed by Sway Cast Network. Star Wars The Old Republic Annihilation was read to you by Jason Odega. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I am your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away.